0: Well, our sermon text uh, today is Psalm 53. Every first Sunday, uh, we go through the Psalms in order, and we are up to Psalm 53. If you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Psalm 53, give ear to the reading of God's Holy Word. To the choir master, according to the Mahaloth, a miscal of David, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God. There they are in great terror where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. A man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. Let's pray and ask his blessing upon his word to us today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you that it is inspired, inerrant, without error. It is uh, infallible. It always teaches us the right way, the way of salvation, the way of living in a way that's pleasing in your sight through faith in Christ as well. And we thank you for the fact that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. But we ask once again, as we are unable to understand rightly on our own, that you would work in us by your Holy Spirit, that you would teach us your word this morning that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, Psalm 53, you may or may not know, is it's nearly a word-for-word repetition of an earlier psalm, Psalm 14. If you were to go back maybe this afternoon and kind of compare the two, you'll notice very slight differences, uh, such as the name of God is different, uh, Yahweh, or Lord in all capitals, you'll see that's the name used of God in Psalm 14, whereas in our text this morning, Psalm 53, the word God, which is the translation of the word Elohim, is used, and there's other slight differences, but a lot of it is, is really word for word, uh, a repetition of that earlier psalm. Now, some, some uh, among us might question the need for such repetition. You might think, think to yourself, you know, if Psalm 14 is already there, What's the use? What's the need? Why have this other psalm with so much repetition, so much that's the same, uh, included in Scripture? Now, we should be careful not to try to be uh, wiser than God. In his wise providence, God saw fit to include both of these psalms of David in Holy Scripture. And I think we can be certain that if God saw fit to include this psalm of David in addition to Psalm 14 that its message must be something that you and I are in dire need of hearing more than once. There must be a reason for it. Charles Spurgeon of this psalm writes the following. He says, The nature of man is here brought before our view a second time in almost the same inspired words. And then he says, All repetitions are not vain repetitions. We are slow to learn and need line upon line. David, after a long life, found men no better than they were in his youth. Holy Writ never repeats itself needlessly. There is good cause for the second copy of the psalm. Let us read it uh, with more profound attention than before. If our age has advanced from 14 to 53, we shall find the doctrine of this psalm is more evident than in our youth. He's, he's assuming that David that these are chronologically in order that David wrote 14 earlier in his in his age and then 53 later on. Either way, whatever the case, whenever David wrote either one, Spurgeon is certainly right. David, nothing changed. We we don't mankind does not change mankind's nature outside of Christ does not change at all. And so these psalms that have so much repetition uh, both say the same thing with good. With good reason. Now you and I as believers in Christ, people that hold a high view of scripture, uh, we have to strive to have a right biblical view of everything, don't we? We should want to know, as a, as a Christian, you should want to know, it should be your goal, what does the Bible, if anything, have to say about whatever subject it is? Whether it be the nature of man, sin, depravity, the gospel, anything of those Kinds. We have to come to a right biblical view of the nature of man. You and I don't naturally think biblically. That's why Romans 12, Paul says, that we have to renew our minds. That's by the renewing of our minds, which is by scripture, that we have our lives transformed. So we have to come to a right biblical view, which is really God's view, of things such as the, the nature of mankind, sin, depravity, atheism, and unbelief. We have to have a biblical view of those things if we're to rightly understand a lot of things. The history of humanity will make no sense to you if you don't have a right view, a biblical view of mankind in sin and rebellion against God. We're not going to understand the world around us that we live in without an understanding from the Bible of those things. And maybe most importantly, you and I are not really going to be equipped to have a right understanding of, of our great need for Christ, of our great need not just for the gospel in general, but for the sovereign grace of God in saving sinners in the gospel of Christ. If we don't understand sin and depravity and atheism and unbelief according to scripture. If you fail, and if I fail to understand and accept what the Bible says about the depravity of mankind and sin. That is apart from the grace of God in Christ. We are, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, dead in our trespasses and sins. And by nature, Ephesians 2.3, he says, by nature, on our own, outside of Christ and God's grace, we are children of what? Wrath. That's our, that's, that's our nature outside of Christ. If we don't understand that, we're going to have a great deal of difficulty understanding the world around us, the evil that is even now still so prevalent on this earth, and the great need for the gospel of Christ. In fact, on top of that, you won't even really understand yourself. Will you? To, have, to not have a right view of these things is really to not have a right view of yourself, your own history, your own guilt, corruption, and sinfulness. And so you'll never really grasp that your desperate need for Christ, for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, all this is wrapped up in your view of, of mankind in sin and corruption and depravity outside of, of Christ. So the first thing we're going to see in the psalm of David this morning is God's verdict, God's description of sin and depravity, the sin and depravity of of all mankind. In the first three verses of the psalm, it's a short psalm, the first half of the psalm gives us God's verdict on the atheist and the unbeliever. The first thing that the psalm tells us is kind of the self-talk, the mindset or the attitude of the atheist and unbeliever. Verse 1, David just says uh, very memorably, the fool says in his heart, what? There is no God. In, in the Hebrew, it's even more short than that. It's, it's very clipped. It's just no God. You have to supply the, the there is. The, the fool says in his heart, no God. God is not there. He is not. does not exist. Just no God. Now, notice, who is the atheist talking to here, or the fool talking to here? Himself, herself. The fool says in his heart, or to his heart, no God. No God. It's as if he's trying to convince himself that God is not there. You know, Very often we think of atheists and skeptics spending all their time and energy trying to convince other people that God is not there. And they certainly do that. But first and foremost, the fool is the one who tells himself or herself that God is not there. Now, to call such a person a fool is a moral judgment, isn't it? It's an insult, but sometimes it's a, it's a fitting insult. In this particular case, it's a moral judgment. God is saying such a person is a fool. And why, why is that? Why is, it, why is it proper for God to say that such a person is a, is a fool? Well, the reason is unbelief or atheism is not just a matter of ignorance. We tend to think that it is, but it's not the case. It's really a matter of choice. It's really a matter of deceiving oneself. For the fool is the one here telling himself that there is no God. Telling herself that there is no God. What does the scripture say about this topic? What does the Bible have to say about how people know that God is is there? Psalm 19, that was our, our call to worship. The first four verses say this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day does what? pours out speech pour you ever know somebody that can 't stop talking? you know well, that, that can be annoying, but it 's saying that day to day pours forth speech it 's nonstop there's never it doesn 't take a breath. The creation does night to night does what reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard in other words it 's not audible. But then what does it say in verse 4? Their voice, even though it's not audible, their voice goes out through where? All the earth and their words to the end of the world. Is there a corner in all of creation, in the, not just the world, but the universe itself, where there is not abundant, constant, clear testimony to everyone that God exists? The answer to that is an emphatic no. There is no person on this earth, you know, the old saying that you know, people sometimes say, oh, if if God would just uh, you know peer through the clouds and you know tell me He's there you know give me a sign I'd know He's there well guess what He has and what is that sign everything what sign does the unbeliever or atheist need besides everything in the universe that's the sign Psalm 19 says they have every waking moment everything around them even their own existence screams that God is there. The creation declares God's glory. And also his existence as well. If it declares his glory, it certainly declares his existence. The sky above, what does verse one say in Psalm nineteen, proclaims, proclaims his handiwork. It testifies to all mankind that there is a creator, that there is a sustainer of all things, that the order of the universe proclaims that God is there. Their voice goes out through all the earth. So the atheist does not lack evidence for God's existence. He or she is literally surrounded by it at every moment. Every single moment. Likewise, the Apostle Paul says the same kind of thing in Romans chapter 1. Romans 1 verses 18 to 23, probably a very familiar passage to many of you. It says there, Romans 1, 18 to 23, the Apostle Paul says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, Paul goes on, he didn't have to, but under the inspiration of the Spirit, Paul goes on to give a rationale for that. Why is it fair or just for the wrath of God to be revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men? Why is that, why is that right? Why is it fair or just for God to do that? Listen to what Paul says in the rest of the passage. He says, For for what can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. Who has shown everyone on this earth that he exists? God has. And then what does it say? How? It says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, see, they knew God. They didn't at one point, at any point in their life, not know God and then for you know, come to know him. They knew him already. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Sounds like the first commandment, right? But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became what? Fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, even idolatry, even false religion kind of betrays the unbeliever. It, it tells them they really know better. They can't, it's almost like they can't help themselves. They're so wired to understand that there is something beyond themselves that they, that they have to do with, uh, that even if they don't worship the one true living God, they worship something, a false god in many cases. But, but they know better. Why? Because God has shown it to them. And Paul says there they are without excuse for that. God himself has shown the atheist and the unbeliever that he exists, and he has done so, verse 20, ever since the creation of the world. Literally since day one, you could say, there has been evidence of God's existence. There's never been a single day in the entire history of humanity, of the universe, where all creation was not testifying loud and clear to God's existence. His glory and, what does Paul say, his eternal power and divine nature have been revealed through creation. And what's the result of all that? Anyone who would deny God's existence, anyone who would tell themselves No God is what? According to the scripture in Paul's writings in Romans 1. Without excuse. And notice what else Paul calls them there in verse 22. Same word is found in our text. Fools. Proclaiming to be wise, they became fools. Same word in our psalm. So David goes on to tell us in verse 1 that they are corrupt. They are corrupt. Doing abominable iniquity. And that there is none who does good. They don't just do terrible things. They also don't do what? Good things. And, and the language in the Hebrew, it's, it's, it's almost a mirror image of the atheist's self-talk. The atheist says, no God. And God says, no one who does good. That's, that's kind of God's answer back to, to the fool and to the, the atheist. They, they do, they know, there's no one who does good. Not, not one. None. None who does good in God's sight. Now, how, how widespread is this plague of sin and depravity and unbelief? How far does it go? Is it just a select few? You know, we, whenever we think of, of really bad people, everybody seems to land on Hitler somehow. as he's, he's the one that he certainly was. But is it just confined to people like him that we know that everybody somehow agrees upon as being evil and, and, and wicked? No. No, in, in verses 2 to 3, what does David write here in our psalm? It says, God looks down from heaven on the children of man. Why? To see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. God's looking. He's looking. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. In other words, he says it first the first time there's none who does good, no, not one, not even one. And then he says, as if we had to find out. God looks. The one who can see everything looks. And what does he find at the end? Same thing as he said before. There's none who does good, not even one. Now, the atheist in telling himself no God, or that there is no God, what's, what's the very thing the atheist is trying to convince himself of? What's his hope? A vain hope. But what's his, what's his or her hope? That God is not there and that because God is not there, he's not seeing God doesn't see what they do. He doesn't see their, their abominable iniquity and sin, but that's a vain hope because what does it say? He is there, and he looks. He looks down from heaven on the children of man. You know, if you read your Old Testament, if you read your Old Testament, things like uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, the flood, and other passages of Tower of Babel, it describes God as doing what? It's kind of, for our, it's kind of a, a figure of speech for our benefit. God sees everything, but it says God looks he looked upon the earth, and what did he see? That every intention of man's hearts was upon evil continually. That's what he said before sending the worldwide flood in Noah's day. God looks. Sodom and Gomorrah, what did God do? You know, God went to Abraham, kind of, let's make a deal sort of thing. And and you know, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And what did Abraham say? Well, what if there's righteous people? And he starts kind of narrowing the number down. What if there's 50? You know, what if there's 45? It's, it's like the reverse of an of a auctioneer. You know, 50, 45, 40, 35. And he goes all the way down, doesn't get to one. And why is that? I think it's because Abraham knew the answer already. There wasn't one. And so God, by his grace, got Lot and his, his wife out of that evil place. There's none who does good. There's none. And God looks. That's the atheist's worst fear, is that God looks, that God sees. And what does God see? He looks to see if there are any who understand, if there are any who seek after God, and does he find any? No, no, he sees that they have all fallen away, together they have become corrupt, or that could be they have all together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not even one. That's God's description of, of all of mankind outside of Christ. That's, that's his description of us outside of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We, none of us do good. We don't come to God bearing our, our good deeds as if we have something of our own with which to approach a holy God. Now, it's certainly not an accident that the Apostle Paul, you might know, quotes this psalm uh, in Psalm 14 in Romans chapter 3. What is, what is Paul's topic in Romans 3, the sinfulness of all humanity, Jew and Gentile alike. The depravity, we use the term sometimes in reform circles, total depravity. If you know the the, the so-called five points of Calvinism, uh, it's, it's the acronym TULIP, the, like the flower. What is the T in TULIP? Total depravity. Um, well, this is what Paul teaches in Romans 3, verses 10 through 18. And listen to this, and you'll pick up uh, where Paul quotes this psalm. As well as others, he says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Psalm 53 and 14. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. Then finally, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, you might find this interesting to know. If you look, a lot of your Bibles probably have footnotes and things that tell you where those things were quoted from. Uh, Part of that was from Psalm 53 and 14. Part of that was from Psalm 5, verse 9. Psalm 140, verse 3. Psalm 10, verse 7. These are not in order in, the, in this quote from Paul, and then Psalm 36 verse 1, he also quotes Proverbs and Isaiah 59:7. Think about that. Think about what Paul does there in Romans 3. He quotes a handful of Psalms, not just our Psalm, but a bunch of others, including Proverbs and Isaiah. When he wants to prove and establish the doctrine of the depravity of mankind in sin outside of Christ, where does he turn? He could have turned a lot of places. He turns over and over again to the Psalms, to the Psalms. Think about how precious the Psalms must have been to the Apostle Paul that he establishes and proves his doctrines from them repeatedly, not just this doctrine, but others as well. And notice how often the Psalms that we just saw, just a handful that Paul quoted, how often the Psalms tell us of the sinfulness and depravity of, manso- of mankind outside of Christ, the subject matter of the psalms is not limited to a few happy things. It deals with hard things, too, even things such as this. Now, how careful ought we to be as a church and as individuals, then, about the songs that we sing in worship? Think about Paul getting his doctrine from the psalms, that he sung. This, this is to the choir master, right? It's, it's meant to be, to be sung. We should likewise sing the psalms whenever we can, And we should see to it that the content, the words of our songs that we sing, the hymns and things like that that we sing, we should make sure they are in accordance with the scriptures, with the word of God. There there is a teaching aspect to our singing. And we should be careful what we're teaching each other and teaching ourselves when we sing. Now, the, the shorter catechism gives us a pretty good description or definition of, if you want one of total depravity, it says this, question 18. Wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate or condition wherein to man fell in the fall in Adam's sin. What, what, what kind of condition are we in, in sin, in Adam? Answer, the sinfulness of that estate wherein to man fell consists in, and here it is, the guilt of Adam's first sin. You know the old saying, in Adam's fall sinned we all, we, we share in his guilt. The guilt of Adam's actual transgression on our own, we share in that. His guilt of his first sin, the want or lack of original righteousness. So not only do we share in guilt, we share in the loss or lack of righteousness itself. It's We, we have the guilt and no righteousness to speak of. The corruption of his whole nature, every faculty of, of mankind, our hearts, our minds, everything, is corrupted at the root in Adam's fall. It says, which is commonly called original sin. And then it adds together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. We think of it entirely backwards. We think, I I believe, most often, that we are sinners because we sin. That's not entirely wrong, but what's the real truth? We sin because that's what we are. We're sinners outside of Christ. We We sin because we are sinners by nature. It's not just what we do. It's not just something we learn. It's something that we are at our very roots. Guilt, lack of righteousness, corruption of our whole nature, and all the sins that proceed from all that corruption. That's, that's the terrible plight of sin and misery that we all, all of us are in and are, if we are left to ourselves outside of Christ. That's us outside of Christ. That's the hopeless situation that you and I are in if we are not in Christ by faith. And praise the Lord Jesus Christ that he came to seek and save that which was lost, That he came, as his name implies, to save us from our sins. And think about this. It's only in Christ, in the gospel, that he answers all of those things that were described in, in in that question. It's only in Christ alone, by faith in him, that we have forgiveness for our guilt. The guilt that we share in Adam's sin as well as our own. It's in Christ alone, by faith in him, that we have forgiveness for our guilt We have no longer a lack of righteousness, but the the righteousness of Christ himself. His perfect righteousness imputed to you by faith when you are in him by faith. As well as what else do we have in Christ? Being born again, we have new life and sanctification in him in the place of corruption and sins. In other words, in, in Christ, in the gospel, we have the answer, the only answer to all the things that we need due to our sin. Forgiveness, righteousness, new life, and sanctification, and all those things. We have that only in Christ. That's why he is the only mediator between God and man, the man Christ, Jesus. Well, the second half of the psalm doesn't just describe the atheism and unbelief. uh, It also, these last three verses describe for us the foolishness of atheism and unbelief. The foolishness of atheism and unbelief. They And why is that? Because such a one not only says there's no God, but such a one thinks by telling themselves that there's no God that they're going to escape God's just judgment and wrath for their sin. Verses 4 to 5, it says this Have those who work evil no knowledge? It's a rhetorical question. What's the answer? Of course they have knowledge, but they act like they don't. Have they no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror where there is no terror, for God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Had they no knowledge, in other words, do they not know better than to rebel against the Lord? And not only that, do they not know better than to, than to you know, persecute, he uses the word to, to devour, to, to persecute God's people? Does the atheist, does the unbeliever, do they really think that God is going to let that slide, that they can harm or touch the apple of God's eye, the ones for whom He sent His Son to die, with impunity? Had, they should know better, is what the psalmist is saying. Had they no knowledge, you know, in spite, uh, despite their protest to the contrary, you know, that, that self-talk in the first verse, no God, there is no God. Uh, how do we know they really believe in God? Because their consciences tell them differently, don't they? Because what does it say there? It says uh, in verse 5, There they are what? In great terror where there is no terror. Proverbs 28.1 puts it this way. The wicked the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. It kind of reminds me of, you ever read Edgar Allan Poe? It has some dark stuff. The Telltale Heart. Remember that story, if you had to read that in the school? You know, the person's own guilt was so heavy upon them, they thought they were hearing the heartbeat of the dead person that they had murdered and buried under the floorboards. What were they actually hearing? Their own heart. Their conscience was so afflicted that they, they finally gave themselves gave himself in. John Calvin puts it this way. He says, The more outspoken a person is in his contempt of God the more startled he will be by the sound of a leaf falling from a tree. That's, that's the real state of an unbeliever when, when push comes to shove. It's why they're, you know, everyone, no one wants to die, but it's, it's why the unbeliever is terrified of death. It's not the unknown, it's the known. It's the known. They know what awaits. Their consciences tell them what awaits. And so they're constantly jumpy at the slightest thing. Why does the unbeliever... Why does the atheist, the unbeliever, the wicked, why do they persecute the church? You ever ask yourself that? I mean, why did they kill Jesus? What did Jesus ever do? Help people, feed people, heal people—you know—all these things. He, nothing but good works, and yet they they crucified him. Why? Why do the wicked very often persecute God's people? Or, is that, or most—we're a very small church. Do do most churches have some kind of power and sway over? the culture over the state in which they live? No. Do they harm their unbelieving neighbors? Maybe sometimes, but, but by, by you know, in general, no. What is, it, what is it that's so offensive about the tiny little stumbling along church that, 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 that the wicked so often persecute? It's because it's a reminder. They can't attack Christ, so they attack those who are in his place. And God will certainly judge for that. They, they know that judgment is coming, coming and so they fear a great fear they're rightly terrified of God and yet they persist in their rebellion against him and in persecution of his people that's really the context of the psalm is God's people suffering persecution and trying to make heads or tails of it so this psalm still applies to the church especially in many places today well not only do the wicked persecute God's people on this earth and devour them at times as they devour bread verse 4 but notice he also adds they do not call upon God it almost seems like an odd thing to tack on the end of that verse. You know, they're, they're, they're destroying God's people. They're devouring them as they eat bread, as if it's nothing to them. They don't even give it a second thought. That's what that means. But then he adds, they don't call upon God. Spurgeon puts it this way. The carnal mind envies those who obtain mercy. The carnal mind envies those who, who obtain mercy, and yet it will not seek mercy itself. I mean, the offer for the wicked is there just as much as it is for us. If you're a believer in Christ, they have the offer of mercy if they repent and turn to Christ. And yet that, that's the depth of unbelief and depravity, that they won't even do that. Rather, they'll persist in that wickedness. The atheist, the unbeliever, the wicked tells himself or herself that God is not there, that he does not see and that he will not therefore judge. But the scriptures here in Psalm 53 and elsewhere rebuke such a thought. For in this psalm, what are we told about God? Not just that he's there, but God what? He sees. He sees, verse 2, verse 5, that he scatters. He scatters the bones of those who would lay siege to his people. It, he sees and he scatters. It's another way of saying he judges. To scatter the bones of your enemies, it's it's about as bleak a picture of utter defeat and, and, and humility that you could possibly imagine. They're laying siege to God's city. That's the picture that's being you know, painted here. That happened at times in the Old Testament, right? We, we read about that in the book of Isaiah, late in the book. The fear of, of, of the Assyrians laying siege and, and whatnot. What does God do? He, he so utterly destroys his enemies, he scatters their bones all over the battlefield. They don't even get a decent burial. It's, it's utter humiliation. That's, that's what happens. That's what God has done in the past. God still does that even uh, in our day, and that's one day what he will do on the last day, when he judges the living and the dead. God sees and God scatters. That, that is the, the problem for those who would say there is no God. But thankfully, there's one more thing that God does here in this psalm. He doesn't just see, although he does. He doesn't just scatter, but he also saves. He also saves by his great mercy and grace. Verse 6 David says, oh, that salvation would come uh, for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. And this is speaking of, of the last day of the church as well, that one day God will make all these things right. It's, you know, judgment and mercy are kind of two sides of a coin in some regards. Sometimes God's greatest acts of salvation involve judgment, the judgment on his enemies and his people's enemies, as he delivers his people. The exodus, the, great, the, the Old Testament salvation event, right? For God's people, it was an act of mercy and salvation. But for the wicked, for, for Pharaoh and his armies who were hurting his people, it was an act of judgment. The same act was both judgment and salvation from a different way of, of looking at it. There is an offer of mercy and forgiveness through faith in Christ here, even for the wicked and the unbeliever and the atheist in this psalm. And certainly it's first a comfort to the persecuted church the psalm should be but it also contains the promise of forgiveness and life for any sinner who turns from his sin by God's grace and turns to God through faith in Jesus the psalm should be a great comfort to you as God's people first i think maybe foremost this psalm should remind you and me of our past lives of wickedness and unbelief and even atheism and of at the great mercy of God that he gave upon us in, in, in Christ and in making us alive together in Christ, even when you and I were dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. Think about I mean, it's what Paul does in Ephesians 2. He says, remember at one time, here's how you used to be. You used to be just like what the description of the atheist is in this psalm. And if you're not, if you're a believer in Christ now, why is that? Is it because you're smarter than the fool Is it because you were, you know, however you want to describe it, give yourself the credit for for your faith? No. You were dead in sin, just like anybody else. And yet God in his mercy made you alive with Christ. And by grace you've been saved through faith. Even the faith you have in Christ is not, what does Paul say, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works lest any man should boast. So this psalm should give us cause to praise the glorious grace of God in Jesus Christ, in saving sinners like us. Secondly, let the psalm be an encouragement and comfort to the persecuted church, such as we even heard about this morning in, in our, our friend, or our missionaries to, to China. However much the wicked poor contempt upon and persecute the church and devour them like they devour bread, let her be assured that God sees, and in due time he will scatter the bones of those encamped against his people. As Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39, he says, who, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure... That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The worst that Satan and and the wicked can throw at God's people ultimately can't touch you. It cannot separate you from the love of Christ. He begins and ends that passage with that same sentence, that same phrase. And because of that, what? In all these things, you are what? More than conquerors through him who loved us. This psalm, in a lot of ways, is a reminder to you as God's people that in Christ Jesus, you are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise. Uh, and you, you always speak the truth And your word, the evaluation that you have of us and of all humanity outside of Christ is that we are fools, that we are corrupt down to our very natures, that we are dead in sin and trespasses, that we are under the sway on our own of of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and by nature children of wrath, like all the rest of mankind, that on our own that's what we are. On our own we have no hope outside of Jesus Christ, and we thank you that you have in your great mercy and grace uh, by, your, by your sovereign grace, you have saved us by your grace through faith in Christ, that you have made us alive together with him and, and opened our eyes and our minds that we might see our sin, that we might look to Christ and have life and forgiveness in his name. We thank you for the great gift of the new birth, being born again uh, by the work of your spirit and the preaching of your word. We thank you for this great mercy and grace upon us. And we, we tremble to think of what we, what we deserve, what we all deserve uh, for our sin, for our corruption, for our wickedness and unbelief is, is nothing short of hell and condemnation. That's what we deserve, but thankfully by your grace, those of us who are in Christ, we, we have come to have all things in Christ, that you have blessed us in him. We who deserve wrath were blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing, in the heavenly places in Christ. And we thank you so much that, as Paul says there, that nothing can separate us from your love in Jesus Christ. And that in Him, no matter what the world throws our way, we are more than conquerors, even in all those things, uh, through Him who loved us and laid down His life for our sins. We pray that you might, if anyone here yet does not know you and is still persisting in unbelief and trying to tell themselves that there is no God, we pray that you would show them the same mercy that you showed the rest of us, that you would open their eyes, that they might see the glory of Christ and look to him and have life in his name. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.